Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Snippet. The short podcast platform. This is Check Your Privilege, the podcast. Let's welcome anti-racism guide, mental health activist, and founder of the Check Your Privilege movement, your host, Maisha T. Hill. Hi, friends. I am really excited for this episode of Check Your Privilege. Joining me is my friend, Brittany Stafford. We've been engaged in this work for the last three and a half, almost four years. And Brittany is a member of the CYP team, as well as a member of our Co-Conspirators Lounge. Brittany, welcome. We're so grateful to have you here today. Hi, thank you, Maisha. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for asking me to be here. Absolutely. So just like in our uh, former podcast, Co-Conspired Conversations, we're going to let you name yourself for yourself. Um, And it's essentially a practice of you just responding to the question, who are you seven times? You ready? Yes, absolutely. Okay, Brittany. Who are you? I am human. Who are you? I am mother. Who are you? I am partner. Who are you? I am lifelong learner. Who are you? I am a painter. Who are you? I am a nature lover. Who are you? I am a child. Who are you? I am a stranger. Who are you? I am a friend. Awesome. Thank you, Brittany. I appreciate your participation. Thank you, Maisha. I think this exercise, for those of you who are new to Check Your Privilege, it's a practice where within the collusion of these systems, oftentimes we are unable to name ourselves for ourselves. And so this practice allows us to really name who we are according to our own standards and actually practice that and and really reclaiming who we believe we are and not what the interlocking systems of oppression tell us who we are, right? And so, Brittany, in today's conversation, we're just going to really discuss the privilege of mental health. I don't believe that people understand the nuances of mental health even being a privilege and actually, like, what the impact is having accessibility to pursue mental health treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this is definitely a necessary conversation because I think for a lot of us, speaking for myself as someone who has had lifelong chronic anxiety and depression, who is also white, uh, I and have gone through times in my life where I have lived, you know, below poverty level and not been able to have mental health care, but still found ways to get access. And now that I am 
you know, middle class, I definitely have the financial means. And not only that, but the health coverage. I have a vehicle, I have transportation. So there are there are many intersections, right, to how a person can receive mental health care and what that means. Right. And so for those of you who um, aren't understanding this from the nuance of privilege, we have to think about class privilege, which Brittany named her being from the middle class. We want to look at the intersectionality of her being within a racialized privilege, right? So there's the privilege of a white or dominant culture identity, right? So we've named your privilege, right? Middle class, so that's class privilege. And you also named you being a white woman, right? Comes with that racial privilege. And so identifying that you can still have a multiple marginalized identity and still uphold privilege is kind of the center point and reminder for this conversation. And so mental health treatment, it's actually treated as a privilege and not necessarily as a right. Many individuals who hold marginalized identities, and that is Black, Brown, Indigenous, Southeast Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander, marginalized persons of color who may also have additional layer of identity around LGBTQ plus, right, may not have the class, economic and racialized privilege to get the support that they need to support their mental health care. And we also have to think about the nuance and the relationship that a lot of us, me being a black woman and naming that explicitly, the taboo of accessing mental health treatment. So in my lived experience, there is the, well, you know, if you're depressed, just pray it away or write some affirmations or talk to yourself in the mirror. There's really like this notion that, oh, if I'm feeling depressed, if I'm feeling anxious, instead of pursuing treatment, I'll pursue something, a higher source or a higher power to give me a quick fix rather than accessing treatment and care that is at sometimes culturally relevant and available for me. Now, Brittany, when we think about the privilege of cultural relevance, right, in mental health treatment, there is a large percent of therapists that are white and white passing, correct? Absolutely, yes. And in your experience in working with, if you don't mind sharing, like white therapists, has your experience in pursuit of treatment been one of pathological understanding or has your treatment been, you know, just easy to get? Like, what has your process been as a woman, as a white woman been to pursue the privilege of access to mental health treatment? Thank you for asking that question. I think for me, it has been, like I said previously, that, you know, even being before adulthood and living below lower class, I suppose. And I I don't like that term, but I'm not sure what else to use right now. But I was still able to receive access. And I think that that was, you know, in direct relationship to the fact that I have a white mother and her experience receiving 
financial assistance, whether that was monetary or through medical insurance, I was still able to receive that access without having too many barriers put in my way. Now, as an adult, I would say that I have the times that I have sought out therapy specifically, I have had no problems whatsoever finding a therapist, finding a therapist that was accepting new patients, everything worked out. My insurance is, I mean, phenomenal and does allow for that mental health treatment as far as even going into medications for mental health treatment, that has been simply going to my doctor, telling them what's going on. And that was before seeing a therapist. So it wasn't even having to go through hoops to get my doctor to listen to me. I think that has a lot to do with it as well. So my experience with and it's been white female therapists, we have found a lot of common ground, even if there's been differences in our age groups or anything like that. And what's interesting is it hasn't been until really digging into this specific journey of anti-racism and liberation, where I started being conflicted in my relationship with white therapists. Oh, that's deep. The idea of the conflict of your relationship with white therapists. Oh, that's that's like a deeper conversation, right? So for those of you who need a quick, quick history lesson, we have to remember that therapy was founded and created, curated by white men from the West, a majority of them from countries like England, a few here in America, Germany, et cetera, right? And historically, it was created for white middle-income folks to utilize talk therapy as a form of treatment. And so you, as a white woman, identifying some of the problems within that therapeutic setting, it really supports the notion that even mental health treatment needs to be competent culturally, not just for those that represent that middle-class dominant culture narrative, but it also needs to be accessible to even fit within those constructs around class, gender, race, etc. A lot of people don't think about the privilege of mental health treatment. A lot of folks don't think through like, oh, my therapy session is $200. I have access to that. I'll utilize it and it'll help me, right? But to your point, Brittany, that You can even just go to your doctor under your same insurance and your general practitioner can give you the prescription for what you need. And there are so many of us that have marginalized identities that don't have access to doctors that actually believe that we are struggling to give us the prescription to get us if we choose to go that route. Right. Because remember, it is a very taboo subject and marginalized for me in my black experience. Many of us don't have doctors to believe us enough to give us something to help with the depression and anxiety. And also, right, within the constructs of class and economics, we also don't and may not have access to the financial resources or capital to get the therapy and treatment that we need. And so where do we go from here, Brittany, I guess would be my next question, right? If we understand that there is a privilege, right, to access treatment, 
where do we go from here? If we understand the nuances of white normalized psychotherapy, what do we do different? Mm, That's a good question. I think what has been so pivotal on my own journey and moving past my barriers that I'm putting in front of myself, you know, those mental blockages that are telling me, you know, when I'm doing something the right way or the wrong way, or feeling all of these things that tend to come up, and that's included with my mental health, but understanding how white culture and the systems of domination and oppression and all of the barriers that we have, whether they are cultural, meaning having the taboo linked to taking care of ourselves mentally, and then the intersections of that being your race. And I think understanding that the aspects and assumptions of white supremacy culture don't want people to feel. And the best way to do that is to desensitize us through constant traumas that we are not healing. So understanding that this is a lifelong process where we have to heal ourselves. I suppose also it's not just a personal mindset shift, right? It is also making sure that people have access. What's that look like? I'm not sure. I know that there are a lot of people that are working to bring mental health care at low to no costs to communities who really need it. And I think a huge issue that we're seeing is, like you mentioned, we don't have enough cultural understanding in the therapy field or in the the mental health field in general. And that can even be broadened further to just the medical field at all. So there has to be some sort of shift there, I think, in order to bring more access to marginalized communities. Absolutely. And as we prepare to close, I want to give y'all, the listeners, something to think about and something to consider, right? So while mental health treatment should definitely be a right and not a privilege, we have the opportunity to normalize peer support and what that looks like. So in a system that teaches us individualism that's rooted in white supremacist ableist patriarchy, okay, it is not normal to seek healing in community. And as someone who holds a marginalized identity and who have ancestors that can be tracked all the way to Ghana, I have the understanding that the work of ritual is the work of the community and we don't heal in isolation. We heal in community. So for the listeners, I want you to reimagine what it looks like to help be in pursuit of mental health treatment through peer support and donating your time, talent and resources to organizations that do offer peer-led support groups, right? To destigmatize the taboo around mental illness. 
The other thing that I want to suggest and offer to you is that you consider uh, donating your time and actually, more importantly, your financial resources to projects, mutual aid funds and organizations that support therapy stipends for black, brown, indigenous, Southeast Asian, Asian Pacific Islander and LGBTQ plus folk to have access to therapy services. So I know for a fact that Iwasan Collective uh, has the Brown Sister Speak Therapy Stipend. And I know uh, Rachel Cargo has the Loveland Foundation. And there's uh, Black Men Can Heal. They also offer therapy stipends. And so the invitation is to live into your work, right? It's to how do we really, really make mental health treatment accessible? How do you check your privilege by utilizing your resources, time and talent, right? to make sure that marginalized folk have access to their healing, uh, to make sure that you can support organizations that are destigmatizing the conversations around therapy. And it's not just organizations, it's people on the ground. There are actual therapists who are having and challenging this conversation. But the call here is to just know that it is a privilege to have access to mental health treatment. And as a white person, as someone from the dominant culture, you actually should be using your privilege to make sure that you can help create healing spaces, help fund, right? Donate your time and talents to help leaders create and curate healing spaces for marginalized folk, black, brown, indigenous, Southeast Asian, Asian American, Pacific Islander folks to heal. Brittany, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you, Maisha. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. For those of you who want to know a little bit more about Check Your Privilege, you can check us out at checkyourprivilege.co. Tune in to the next episode. And until I sit with you again, live into your work. Peace. Peace.